from PRX. This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. Bart Layton has had a successful career as a London-based producer of unscripted nonfiction shows for TV in the UK and the US. Documentary series like Locked Up Abroad, which ran on the National Geographic channel. I was now in the worst place in South America. If it means killing somebody, then that's the attitude that you have to have. You know the form, true crime stories combining interviews with dramatic reenactments. Layton's debut as a feature-length documentary director a few years ago was a film called The Imposter, which was a more ambitious and aggressive hybrid of documentary and narrative filmmaking. It's a true story about a young French con artist who had posed as a boy who disappeared from Texas. I bought product to color my hair totally blonde, took big sunglasses, I took a hat, I took a scarf, I took a glove. I thought that if she couldn't see me, then she wouldn't be able to say I'm not a brother. Now, Bart Layton has found another fascinating real-life story set in middle America for his new film. The movie is called American Animals. I'm going to say this one time and one time only. You're either in or you're out. How can I tell you if I'm in or I'm out without you telling me the first thing about what I might be in or out of? This would be something dangerous and very f***ing exciting. It's also about young criminals and the blur between various lines of fiction and reality— But it is not a documentary. Interspersed with the fictionalized version of the events, the actual real people the movie is based on appear as well. Sometimes they even interact with the actors who depict them. And Bart Layton is here to talk about it. Welcome to Studio 360. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So describe what American Animals is about. The plot is about a group of young men from Lexington, Kentucky. One of them goes to a university, one of the oldest liberal arts colleges in in the U.S., and discovers that his library has a special collections room. And in that room is the most valuable books on the planet, potentially. In particular, the Birds of America by John James Audubon, which I think to this date is still valued in the tens of millions. And they begin to wonder if they could plan the perfect robbery uh, by watching old heist movies. And which is a great scene. And they're, and they're watching a lot of movies that where, where it doesn't end well. I mean, it's not just like Thomas Crown Affair. I mean, they're watching movies where the guys get killed. Yeah, maybe they didn't make it that far. Maybe they were just focusing on, like, uh, you know, the plotting aspect. Yeah. And what starts as a sort of fantasy, as a kind of game, they arrive at a place where they kind of realize that actually they could probably do it and they could probably get away with it. And um, like all good heist movies, it doesn't go entirely to plan. (laughs) When you heard about this story, what made it a good subject for a Bart Layton film? (laughs) You know, I thought it was a fun story to begin with. I thought it was amazing that a group of seemingly well-educated young men from good families and good homes would end up attempting something like this. That was intriguing. I didn't know what could have motivated them, given that it seemed so unlikely they could ever have thought they'd get away with it. I decided to make contact with them. Yes. It was the things that they wrote to me and that made me think, okay, this is a story that has to be told because 
it wasn't just that they wanted the money and they they imagined they were going to be kind of riding off into the sunset with bags of cash. They talked about this need to be special. One of right. them talked about his deep desire to become an artist and feeling like he read about all the great artists that ever lived and the one thing they all had in common was that they had all suffered a great deal yeah. and he was looking at his nice, quiet, suburban life thinking, what am I ever going to have happen to me that's going to give me any sort of experience, meaningful experience of life that's going to give me something worth creating art about? Right. And, you know, as a dramatist, you pick up any screenplay book and the first thing it will say is, you know, establish your character and establish his or her problem. What do they want? What do they want? Yeah. And in this case, you know, this guy's problem was that he didn't have a problem. <laughs> yes. And he sets out yeah. to kind of manufacture one. And that just seemed like such a extraordinary and kind of honest starting point. And it also felt like it spoke to something about not just this generation, but maybe a lot of them, you know, and this idea that we're all inhabiting a culture where we're told that we have to be special, we have to right. be interesting, we have to be important. You know, they'd been brought up with this expectation that, you know, they were going to be special in some way or that their lives were going to be extraordinary. And, you know, most of us, as we as we enter adulthood, we sort of, you know, we, we realize that probably we're not going to be remarkable and um, we're going to be, you know, pretty ordinary like everyone else. And but But I don't think that was ever quite as problematic as it is these days. You know, I don't think there was quite as much pressure on people, particularly young people, to be kind of noteworthy, you know, to leave a mark on the world. Right. Were you thinking of it uh, at first as a documentary, or did you, out of the, as soon as you found out about it, thinking, no, I, I want to make a scripted feature out of this? I kind of come from the place of thinking, you know, what is the best way of telling this story? And there's something about it being a true story and a story of young, slightly lost young men searching for an identity and choosing to try and live in a movie yes. instead of their reality yes. that, that felt like, oh, I wonder, you know, I found myself thinking maybe there's a new way to tell a true story, right. you know, one that we haven't quite seen before. Because I think, you know, how many times you go in the cinema and it's, you know, it says based on a true story. Right. It's the first thing you see. And then there's sort of that gives huge artistic license for all kinds of fabrication. Right. And work. then you, and and then you Google it as soon as you walk out of the theater and go, wait, that exactly, didn't happen. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I kind of had this nagging thing of like, is there another way of approaching a true story where you kind of get to have your cake and eat it? You know, right. because, you know, that thing that you describe of coming out in the cinema and immediately Googling you know, Molly from Molly's Game or... <laughs> yes, I, exactly. Molly's Game, great example. Uh, the Aaron Sorkin movie about the woman who ran illegal high-stakes poker games. Right. You immediately want to know whether she was as attractive or <laughs> yes. quick-witted or, yes. you know, as portrayed. Or, or spoke like Aaron Sorkin writes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so with this movie, you get the real people in these very sort of short, seamlessly interwoven, I say seamlessly, I, I'm, I'm hoping they're seamless. Mm. And you get this really unusual experience because I think you have a, an emotional connection because of the inclusion of the real people that, you know, you don't have in, in a lot of straight kind of narrative films. Right. And even though you don't necessarily feel like you're going to relate to these 
young men who are about to attempt something, you know, which I think most people would describe as kind of either idiotic or <laughs> incredibly foolish. Yeah. But yet you do because you realize that this really happened and we as as an audience are are kind of hooked in. I think we lean in in a different way. Right. I'm trying to think of models for this. I remember, you know, Warren Beatty's Reds 40 years ago where where they had interviews yeah. with some people from that era. But I can't think of very many precedents for what you've done here. Did you have models? <laughs> you know, actually, I probably there were times when I wished that we did because half the people were like, this is insane. I mean, how is this going to work? And I would just say, trust me, it's going to work great. <laughs> and of course, I was secretly going, I really hope it is going to work great. You know, because you're like, anytime you do something new, it's, it's right. thrilling. But yeah, you're absolutely right. There isn't really a template for it. You do have a great cast. Uh, Evan Peters, who people know from American Horror Story, plays Warren, the charismatic bad boy guy. Barry Keoghan, who was one of the stars of Dunkirk, plays the more low-key Spencer. But they don't really closely uh, physically resemble the real-life guys. Was that uh, a specific choice on your part? Uh, it. W- I, mean, I mean, basically, I just was more interested in finding the best actors than finding people who kind of look alike. Uh-huh. Although what I was struck by, and I wondered if this was deliberate, the real guys in, I think, every instance are more handsome and, like, movie actor-like than the actors. <laughs> yeah. yeah, a couple of people have commented on that. Well, what, was that deliberate on your part? Well, hang on. What, the, the real guys looked more handsome than the, <laughs> than the well, actors? Well, first of all, you were, you were stuck with the real guys you had. Yeah, exactly. It was more that I wanted the actors to feel real, to feel like you or I, you know, to feel, I didn't want these kind of Hollywood pretty boys. Beautiful TV, TV actors. Yeah. And so you get in touch with these guys. Do you then write the screenplay based on what they told you? Yeah, exactly. That's how it went. And oftentimes, you know, two of them would remember the same incident in a quite a different way. Indeed. The show will resume in no time, but I did want to take this moment to suggest you subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, feel free to write a review, which does help people discover the show. And now, back to the podcast. I want to talk about one particular uh, sequence in American Animals that is one of my favorites of among many. It's when Warren and Spencer are first discussing the heist. I'm pretty sure he told me about it at Rich's party. I remember it being cold. I think I told him about it in the car. Maybe November, it was cold. They they both remembered the same conversation happening differently, you know, happening in different locations. So as a dramatist, you know, you can either go, oh, well, I'll just choose the one that is either going to be most cinematic or if you're a producer, the one that's going to be cheapest to shoot or, right. you know what I mean? You You, yep. you kind of... But I actually thought there's something really kind of important in that idea of these sort of conflicting memories. And so what I decided to do was to shoot the same conversation happening in the two different locations. And it is absolutely seamless. Here's a clip of the first part where the actors playing Warren and Spencer are smoking a joint in the car. I still don't understand how a book could be worth $12 million. It's like if Picasso had a bunch of his paintings in a book. 
the purpose of the joint, in a way, is that they pass it between each other and, and they pass it between the locations. So Warren may pass it to Spencer in the car and Spencer takes hold of it at the party. More like a secure room with glass cases and stuff. So it just helps this sort of seamless transition between... Uh, one place and another. The sequence ends with this sort of very meta moment. Spencer and Warren uh, pull up to a convenience store. So Spencer gets out of the car and we follow him as he goes into the convenience store and the camera pans back to Warren, who's left sitting in the car. And when we pan back round to him, Warren, the actor, played by Evan Peters, is sitting in the car next to the real Warren. And the actor, Warren, asks the guy who he's playing in the movie. So this is how you remember it? Not exactly. But if this is how Spencer remembers it, then let's go with it. I don't think I've ever seen that before, right? A, a real-life person <laughs> I hope not, yeah. talking to the actor playing him. I, I hope not. I mean, I love the idea that you know, we are basically in a scene from Spencer's memory right, in right. which Warren is saying, this is not how I remembered it, you know, so if it's how Spencer remembers it, then fine, let's just go with that version kind of thing. You know, the curtain gets pulled back and you're invited to be kind of part of the process in a way that I think, you know, you probably haven't seen before. And I, you know, there were a lot of people who read the screenplay and they were like, oh God, those bits, I think they're going to, you know, isn't there a danger they're going to throw me out of the movie? And the reality is, is they do the opposite. They may throw you out momentarily, but the effect of it is that it gives you a greater emotional investment. Yes. So these guys, they're not out to kill anybody. But as I watched it, I I thought, okay, these young, white, middle-class, male, American dudes looking for thrills and purpose by committing this spectacular crime. I I couldn't help but think of the the guys who go into schools and shopping centers and shoot them up because Mm. that's the way they get famous. Did you think of that social psychology in this more benign way? Yeah, it's a great question. I I did. um, And, you know, the movie starts, and if you don't know, it's a heist movie. And I think, you know, probably most people will going in. But, you know, there's a very, there's a real intention at the beginning to leave you a little bit uncertain as to what's afoot. And, but obviously wanting to be very sensitive because, you know, the truth is, if this had been a more serious crime, and I'm not saying that there, right. it wasn't serious, and there were, there is a victim who, you know, wasn't killed, thank God, but was certainly traumatized. If it had been more serious, we couldn't have made this movie in the way that we did. But part of what I liked about it was the fact that it allows you to talk about some of these motivations. You know, in the UK, there's been a lot of talk of homegrown jihadism. You know, mm-hmm. people young men and women from good families going off to join ISIL and, you know, and how much of what was motivating that behavior was to do with wanting to do something that was completely antisocial. Of course, we don't have the issues with school shootings, you know, and the fact that every time I'm here there seems to be one and the conversation doesn't seem to shift in the way that you would expect, you know, that was something that I guess I wanted to talk about, you know, which is to do with the motivation. What these guys did was was not that. Of right. course it wasn't. Right. But it was 
it was very misguided and it came from a place of wanting to leave a mark on the world. Yeah. It's it's a terrific film and people should go see it. As I used to say, it's a candy mint and a breath mint. It's a great thrilling heist movie and this interesting postmodern meditation on on reality and fiction. It's it's really good. <laughs> I've never heard a, uh, that. A candy mint and a breath mint. I'll take that. Bart Layton, thank you very much. Hey, thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks so much. Thirst is a candy mint. Thirst is a breath mint. Stop. You're both right. New Thirst is two mints in one. Thanks for listening, and you can subscribe to Studio 360 at iTunes or Overcast or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. 